Hey everyone, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 19. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on this show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Before we do that, I want to ask that if you find yourself enjoying this podcast, please take a minute and rate and review it on iTunes. Just go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash iTunes and let me know there what you think of the show. Today, my guest is Brian Stabnick. We talk about great literary fiction, books about creative pursuits, reading with others, and high school English. Let's get to it. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you doing, Ann? I'm doing well. Brian, tell us a little bit about yourself. So I'm a high school English teacher. I teach at Miller Place High School. It's on Long Island. I'm about 60 miles outside New York City. Um, but I also do some things outside the classroom. So I coach basketball. Technically, that's in the school, but not necessarily in the classroom. I also host a podcast for teachers called Talks with Teachers. I do some writing on my site for other educational publications. And then recently, just to piddle around because I don't have enough to do, I started a blog called Wisdom of Man, where I just occasionally share thoughts on things that are stimulating to me, whether it's something that I'm reading or just from my own life experiences, the wisdom that I've gathered that could be passed on to others. That sounds very interesting. Now, where does reading fit into all that? Um, that's a great question. Because <laughs> the more commitments I have, the less time I have to read. But what I try to do is find pockets of reading. And I think as an English teacher, part of my school day schedule is I am provided with prep periods to lesson plan, to grade. But I also think a good part of that should be devoted to reading because one of the things that is a struggle for a high school teacher, and I'm sure it's true of a middle school teacher and perhaps even elementary, is that I feel as the students get older, the less eager they are to read. So part of my job is to find the text that might engage students. And that's not going to happen with just teaching the same books year after year or the same poems or even articles that you find. I think you have to stay current. So part of my job during the school day is to be on the internet looking at articles and to read Amazon reviews and to find the text that might appeal to adolescents. Now, are you talking about texts that you're looking to teach? Or are you talking about those conversations you have in the pockets with kids about what you're reading and what they may want to read just to continue that conversation about books? I think it's both. I think uh, recently I just ordered Talk Like Ted, a, a class mm -hmm. set because I teach a public speaking class. And as I was reading it myself, I'm thinking about, my gosh, this will be so wonderful for my students. And it would be a great end of the year senior project to have my seniors before they graduate high school give a TED talk to their classmates about something that's important to them. But it also happens not just on the class level, but on the individual level. I wrote an article for Edutopia in the past year and a half called Our Boys Need Us. And one of the things that as a male that teaches, I really want to impact is young men in school because the statistics are somewhat discouraging. Boys are more likely to drop out, more likely to abuse drug and, drugs and alcohol, more likely to commit suicide, less likely to go to college. And with all those statistics, I think books could be one avenue to reach young men. And so I'm always on the search for books that could appeal to young boys. Um, and I think 
often in the hallways and in conversations with students, I hear about John Green books and Divergent and Insurgent and Break and um, the oh my gosh, I'm blanking on the Vampire Werewolf trilogy. <laughs> I'm not going to be able to Twilight. Say Twilight. <laughs> and the Twilight books, and I think a lot of these books appeal to young girls, but there isn't that series other than Lord of the Rings that I hear appealing to young boys. So I'm always on the lookout for those types of books that might spark their interest. Interesting. Okay. I can't wait to dive into that a little more. Um, let's get started. Here's how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you hate and what you've been reading lately. And we'll talk about what you should read next. Okay. Now I'm interesting to hear how, uh, teaching books and reading books, how those interact for you. What are three books that you love, Brian? So three books from the past few years that I really loved. Uh, first, I would say is Mudbound by Hillary Jordan. Mm -hmm. Tell and us a little about that one. What's interesting about it is her mother was a longtime AP literature teacher in Texas. So I'm on a discussion board with other AP teachers and the book had came up and people had recommended it. And just through word of mouth, finally, I took the bait and got a copy of it. And it was just it's just a great novel. And it's set in post-World War One South. And it's the struggle of a woman who was from an urban area who moves to a farm and with her husband has to adopt to that new lifestyle. And it's a book about race. It's a book about class. It's a book about a region of the country that I've never really lived in. So it was a learning experience for me. And what was great about it is I read it over the summer and my wife and I did a little bit of both. We had the audio book and we had the physical book. And so when we would drive, we would play the audio book. And then when we could sneak out 15 or 20 minutes, she would read the hard copy and then I would read. And we were kind of going back and forth where we would say, had you gotten up to this part yet? And then it was almost this shared experience that was so enjoyable because it was the summer. We were off from school. She's a teacher as well. And I can remember we both got to the point where we had about 15 or 20 pages left. And I remember one night, I think it was a Thursday night, the kids were asleep and I read it out loud to her on the couch. And it was just such a great ending. And it's a surprise ending. And it just that experience alone, the shared experience of reading a book together was it was remarkably memorable. Interesting. Is that something that happens a lot for you? Or is that uh, really unusual for you guys? It happens. Occasionally over the summer, um, she was a middle school English teacher for 10 years. And when we had our first son, she went back to school, got a degree in ESL. And she hasn't left that middle school genre. So she loves the books that have series to them. Whereas I gravitate more towards nonfiction books and more literary novels. So it doesn't happen as often as I would like. Okay. But you do a lot of reading with your students, do you not? I mean, I only have my high school experience to draw from, but do you do reading in class with your kids at all? All the time. And it's often the close reading of just pulling out a page of text and kind of putting it under the microscope to see what it reveals. Um, but we don't necessarily do whole class reading with mm -hmm. an entire novel. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You couldn't get very far, unfortunately. Yeah. I tried that with Heart of Darkness once and it took much longer than anticipated and was much harder than anticipated. Oh, interesting. Okay. Brian, what's your second favorite? Uh, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And this is a book that I've shared with my students. And I teach a creative writing class. So it's a book about creative writing, but doesn't give you 
any of the practical nuts and bolts tips on writing. It's more about the mentality of being an artist and creating work and perhaps most importantly, overcoming the resistance that we all face whenever we try to tackle a creative endeavor. Do you read a lot of that type of book or is this one you just stumbled upon? Much like Mudbound, it was one that I had heard through word of mouth through other teachers. And I like the books that are inspirational and motivational, but also at the same time practical. And what The War of Art does, as I said, is give you this framework of how to attack your art. And I like that aspect of it because it's not prescriptive in the sense that I've always found things that are prescriptive somewhat limiting because it's confining you to a procedure, a formula, a series of steps. Whereas this is empowering because it allows you to enable your own individuality to come out however you see fit. But it gives you that frame of mind to be persistent, to be dedicated, to understand that there will be obstacles along the way. And it's the mentality to recognize those things, confront them, but have the strength of mind to overpower them. And I think that's true of my teaching. It's true of the writing that I do. So much of it is the mental game of being able to sit down in front of a screen and just type. And that's one of the big, biggest battles that you face is the motivational aspect of it. And I think that's where this book is so successful because it is broken up into short chapters. It's not a long book, but it does fill you with that gusto to go out there and create something remarkable. That's interesting. You said Pressfield gives you a framework, and I really thought you were going to say kick in the pants, because that was definitely my, my impression. Sit down, shut up, and get to work. That seems like a great read for late high schoolers. Yeah, and we do it senior year, just at the point when senioritis sets in. And I don't know if you had senioritis, but it can be... <laughs> if I did, that would have been the book to read. ...of contagion, where it spreads from one student to another. So it starts in the late winter, early spring... And I've noticed this over the years because I've taught for roughly 10 years, is that usually when the temperature hits about 60 degrees and college letters of acceptance come in, oh, that's uh -huh. when motivation kind of goes out the door. And this is a book that reminds them that no matter what stage they are in their academic career or just whatever it is that they're pursuing, that there is always time to do work that is valuable and work that is meaningful and things that you can find personal satisfaction in. Because part of the book is about his own experiences of failure and how he struggled for so long as a writer, but it was that dedication to his art and his craft and being humble enough to keep trying in the face of failure. Yes. And for those who haven't read it, Pressfield really personifies creative blocks, writer's block, ennui, that kind of thing as the resistance. So I can see those 60 degree beautiful spring days becoming his resistance. Exactly. It's a nice vocabulary to use with a 17 year old. Okay. Brian, what's your third book? Uh, Let the Great World Spin. It's by Colin McCann. Mm -hmm. And I'm a sucker for all things Irish. And I just, especially being a New Yorker, and it's a book about 9-11 that doesn't tackle it head on. It's that it goes back to when the towers were first constructed. Mm -hmm. And if you've seen the documentary Man on Wire about Philip Petit, who traversed from one tower to the next on a high wire in the late 1970s in New York City, that's kind of the opening of the book. And then from there, it goes on this adventurous journey of the different people that were impacted that day in the 1970s. And I just think it's a book that is so New York, but so universal. And with 9-11 being such a 
indelible experience in my life because it was a year after I had graduated from undergrad and I went to school in New York City. So the city was still a part of me. And it's just a book that I think is phenomenal for the journey that it takes you on. And a cool story about it is I shared it with a student one year for an independent reading and she loved it as well and ended up going to school in the city and had Colin McCann as a professor in one of her classes. So she got me an autographed copy and it's something that I cherish. That is incredible. Well done, yeah. teacher. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice that she still remembered you. Okay, Brian, tell me one book you hate. I can never get into Slaughterhouse-Five. I've tried it, I'd say, once every three to four years. And it's, I don't know what it is about that book. And it just throws me off and the time travel. And it's just frustrating for me because I want to like it so badly because I know so many people are passionate about that book. But it's just never meshed with me. Okay, so it's not that when you first said Slaughterhouse Five, I thought that it might be to, you know, in that book, he calls it his book about Dresden, the Allied yeah. firebombing campaign of World War Two. There's just devastating. I thought maybe you didn't like his approach to it, that war is just comically and horrifyingly absurd and just biting satire. But that's not what you're saying at all. No, it's the, I guess, the alteration of time and, um, how do you say transfalmagorians? <laughs> I think you're saying that I'm right? not going to try to do it any better. It and I, I think just that stumbling block right there shows that I've never fully bought in. And mm -hmm. I've gotten through the first 15 pages okay. And then after that, once it starts shifting, I don't know if it's just I get lost or my motivation goes out the window, but it's just a book that I have never gelled with. Now, how do you feel about Vonnegut's other works? Oh. Harrison Bergeron is one of my favorite short stories of all time. Okay. So it's not necessarily his writing style. I think it's just something about that book. I don't know. I can't put my finger on it. Okay. That's good to know. Brian, what are you reading right now? So I'm reading a couple things. Recently, I had spent about eight years as a basketball coach. And when my wife and I had our two boys, I stepped away for a little bit. But now I'm back in the game. So... Lately, I've been reading stuff about leadership and management, and not in the business sense, but more of the um, tactical, what do you do in moments of crisis? So I'm reading Lincoln's Virtues and Ethical Biography. It's by William Lee Miller. I just started it. And I'm just fascinated by this idea of Lincoln in that a man from such humble beginnings was able to rise to national ascendancy and at a time of such immense crisis, maintain logic, maintain rationality, maintain his wisdom, and do it in such an intelligent way that I think there could be so many parallels between that and coaching, in that the chaos of a game and when things don't go as planned, how do you as a coach maintain control over your players? And how do you evaluate a situation in which things don't go right and still maintain the ability to think logically and rationally. Mm -hmm. On top of that, I'm also reading a book about the Navy SEALs. So it's called Extreme Ownership, and it's Leadership Lessons from the Navy SEALs. And it, it has a similar aim in that I just want to understand, because I, I admire the SEALs for their ability to have everyone be selfless in sacrifice of the team, 
And you heard this with the raid on bin Laden. No one was willing to acknowledge who took that shot that killed bin Laden because that would give one person more credit than anyone else. And all those members of that team talked about that it was the team that did it. It was the team. It was the team. Mm-hmm. So I want to see if I can understand what they do to create such selfless individuals and to have people willing to sacrifice so much for the sake of a collective whole. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay, Brian, I'd like to circle back for a minute. I'm wondering, as a high school teacher, if any of these favorites you're sharing appear in the classroom, and if you'd feel comfortable telling your kids that you hate Slaughterhouse-Five because it's just, it's just, it's not working for your brain. If I asked you your favorite books to teach and to talk about with your kids, would that be a different list? It would be a completely different list, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is just our book inventory, so like, let the great world spin. We just haven't bought copies of it yet. And I don't even know if it would be acceptable in a school setting. I think it would with upper level students with juniors or seniors rather than freshmen or sophomores. But the books that I love to teach have been staples of our curriculum. So To Kill a Mockingbird without a doubt would be first on that list. I haven't taught it in about seven or eight years, but it's the book that I taught when I was student teaching. It's the book that made me realize what it is to be a father. It's a book that I think I end the novel by saying this to my students. It's a book that will speak to you now as a high school student, but in 15 or 20 years down the road, when you have two kids and you're toting through the mall and you see a bookstore and you'll see To Kill a Mockingbird on the shelf. And I said to them, you owe it to yourself to read it again as an adult because the experience will be drastically different. And what you get out of it now won't be what you get out of then because your life will have been altered and changed and progressed and matured. But it's a book that touches us all in ways that I think the strength of it shows what it can do to you at various stages of your life. And I think it's a book that's so American and it's talking about race and class and our relations to one another. And I think it's a book that has those vignettes where each chapter early on seems like its own individual short story. But then when you piece it together, it creates this collective whole that is, it's one of the best reading experiences I've ever had. So it sounds like on a lifetime favorite that might make your list. Definitely. Do you need to love a book like that in order to teach it well? Oh my gosh, certainly. I think students are so perceptive to authenticity and One of the things they have remarkable intelligence about is body language and nature and how you present yourself because they see it on a high school setting. We have nine periods a day, so they see it nine times a day. They see nine adults in front of the room and they know who's faking it and who is authentic. So I think you, without a doubt, have to teach the books that you love because if you don't love it, then there's no way that your students are going to love it. Well, can you admire a book and not love it and still have them appreciate that aspect of it? Yeah, that's been my experience with Heart of Darkness. I tell my students that it's probably the most difficult hundred pages that you are going to read. And they do struggle with it. The vocabulary is extremely difficult. The writing style where it's a frame narrative where we have the outside story and then the inner story of Marlowe and Kurtz is difficult for them to follow. There are occasions when it flashes back to that outer tale so that you know that they're on the boat outside of London, but then we go and it's not clearly distinguished when the narrator is jumping unless you're really reading closely. And so for my students, it's a struggle for them, but 
I try to convey to them that that struggle, even though it might not be pleasant, is worthwhile because thematically what you can get out of that book is something relevant. And I think it's something that at that age, when they are juniors or seniors in high school, they need to understand this larger context of the way in which part of the world does operate. And I think that's part of the nature of the frame tale is that it's showing that this was true of Marlowe's journey down the Congo River, but then it can be applied to a bigger picture, which then can be blown out to an even bigger picture. And then you could see, as we mentioned before with Stephen Pressfield, a framework of Mm -hmm. how imperialism works and how the strong can oppress the weak. Brian, I'm curious if there are any books that you had to teach that you were only so-so about when you started, but came to love in the process of diving deeply into them with your students. Because it sounds like the process of teaching them and discussing them with a, you know, a group of younger people can change the way you feel about a book. So I remember it was my first year at the district I'm in now, Miller Place High School. And this is about eight or nine years ago. And there was the teacher that, you know, was the teacher of the year, it seems like every year. He taught English for 30 years. He taught AP literature. He was retiring at the end of that year. And they had asked me if I had wanted to teach that course. And this was only about my third year of teaching. And I really wanted to, but was also nervous at the same time. And I agreed to do it. And so that summer, I spent the entire summer reading over his syllabus and looking at the books that he taught. And a lot of the books I had to adopt from him because they weren't part of the curriculum that I had taught in other districts. So it was Macbeth. It was Heart of Darkness. It was Grapes of Wrath. It was uh, Frankenstein. And these books were books that I all had read maybe five, ten years ago as an undergrad. And here I was revisiting them again. And it was almost forced upon me that these were books that I had to love. Otherwise, the students would see the inauthenticity in it. So in reading them, not only did I have to find ways to teach them, I had to find ways for myself to really appreciate what they offered so that I then could in turn pass it on to my students. So you needed to to find a sympathetic way to engage with these texts that didn't fire you up when you saw them on the syllabus? Um, I don't know. I think part of the experience of reading them the first time years ago was that they were read personally mm-hmm. for my own enjoyment. And I think it's a different task to think about how you would teach a book as compared to how you would enjoy it. And I think it requires a little bit closer scrutiny because you're not just thinking about what the book offers. Then you have to think about how you can convey that to students, because it's one thing just to tell students that you like a book and you like it because of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. One of the great challenges of teaching is to get students to discover it for themselves. And so what happens often is that I can't ask students to get the same thing out of a book that I would. I think I have to find the opportunity to allow them to get something out of it, but it has to be on their terms Mm -hmm. because otherwise then it's imposing. And I think one of the lessons we learn a part of darkness is that when you try to impose your will on others, and even though it's seemingly being done in a way to enlighten others, you realize that the one doing it is more barbaric rather than the native person. And so I think when you try to impose your view on students, what you end up doing is diminishing their love of reading because then it becomes about you and not them. It becomes about your reading of the text and not theirs. And so 
to go back to Stephen Pressfield again, when we just foster the means for people to create on their own, that's when the best work does happen. So part of the challenge of teaching is to present books in ways that students can discover it on their own. And whether they love it or hate it is not necessarily important. It's the fact that they are giving it the opportunity to be something. And that's what's. Mm-hmm. I love that. Brian, is there anything you want to be different in your reading life? I would love to have more time. <laughs> I'm sure that's an easy answer, but I teach full time. Mm-hmm. I'm coaching basketball again. I do podcasting and blogging. And when I get home from school, I try to be the best father that I can be. And part of that is modeling to my two boys that I am a reader because I want them to be readers. But part of that's also going in the backyard and playing on the swing set and riding bikes in the street. So that's why I've had to find these little nooks and crannies throughout the school day to read when I can. But I wish there were just more time for me to sit back and enjoy a book. Okay. I wish I had a magic wand for that. Yeah. However, I do have some titles in mind, and I'll tell you all about them after the break. Readers, welcome back. Brian, our conversation has really taken me straight back to my school days as a senior in high school with Mr. Kolb. That was my favorite English class. For your personal favorites, you've chosen books that are top of the field in their genres, uh, books that really go to your heart, especially too, I've noticed. So many authors have attempted to do what Pressfield did in The War of Art, both before and after him, but he did it best. That's the one you picked. And for your fiction, you picked two stellar examples of contemporary literary fiction. Um, You know, they're not necessarily to everyone's taste, but they're wonderful examples of finely crafted, intricately plotted, beautifully written novels that really succeed at what they set out to do. Does that sound right to you? That sounds incredible. This may be coincidence. You did choose fiction that's historical, that has a really strong sense of place. Is that Mm. what you lean towards or did that just happen since you were confining yourself to a certain time period i think i lean towards that and i hadn't even considered that until you mentioned it but it makes so much sense now okay so we're looking for titles that are best in category and we're going to veer historical and the first one is kind of a no-brainer for me and then i'm going to ask you some questions before before i dish out more so Mm -hmm. book one is city on fire by garth risk hallberg do you know anything about this I don't, so please tell me. Okay. It's a newer release. It's out last October, and it's all I could think of when you were describing your favorites. Um, This one's interesting because it's gotten a good bit of attention in literary circles, and don't tune out if you don't care about it. But even before I started caring about literary news, anomalies and outliners are always kind of interesting for their own reasons, and this is one of them. So for starters, it's over 900 pages, which... I'm not telling you this, you can cross it off your list if you never go over four, but it's extremely rare for a contemporary novel, but almost unheard of for a debut novel, which this is. Um, Publishing a big fat book like that is a risk and publishers almost never take a risk like that on an unproved author. And they did. And that says a lot. And they also paid out a crazy huge advance of like almost $2 million for this thing, which is almost unheard of for a debut for a 900 page book. I mean, this book is just it's it's the oddball. So about the book itself, this is going to sound familiar with the McCann still ringing in your ears, but it's Mm set in 1970s New York City. And this story is big, like I told you, it's almost a thousand pages, but it doesn't feel sprawling because he did a great job of really tightly weaving several disparate storylines together, like in 
it's it's a lot like the McCannon structure. So at the beginning of the novel, there's a shooting in Central Park, and it's hinted at that this is bound up with some uh, questionable activity happening at a rundown townhouse in the East Village. But it takes nearly the whole book to find out why and how those things are connected. And it's not just one tidy little straight line either. So we have a broad cast of characters. We have spoiled rich kids, punk rockers, a man who specializes in making breathtaking fireworks displays for that the whole East Coast appreciates, a down-on-his-luck reporter. It's a really broad slice of humanity. And so to bring these together, McCann used 9-11 and, you know, the building of the towers to foreshadow the fall. Um, Hallberg uses the actual great New York City blackout of 1977 to bring uh-huh. these things together. So it's worth mentioning, if you're listening in, that, and you're not an English teacher, there are lots of heavy themes here, so don't go telling your mom to read this because you heard about it here. But I do think it's up your alley, Brian. How does that sound? That sounds awesome. It sounds like a commitment. That might take you four months during basketball season. <laughs> well, we do have some long bus rides. So. <laughs> Don't get it on a Kindle. So it's oh. 906 pages, but it does contain um, one of the characters makes a zine and there are some letters. There's some uh, they're supposed to look like news clipping articles and those just never translate well in into the, you know, I love my Kindle, but isn't those, that disappointing when that happens? Yeah, it that? is. And that happens a lot. There's so many um, books these days, it seems, that contain emails and letters and, you know, even like inner office memos and the right. more out there themes. And those just, they don't do well in that medium yet. Have you read um, Where'd You Go, Bernadette? I did. That would be awful on a Kindle. I would imagine that. I love that book so much, but the whole email format, I wonder if it would convert. Yeah, that's a good question. And that's not something you see a lot in reviews and you don't always know what you're getting in terms of, you know, how a book is put together. Mm-hmm. Just structurally, but you know, you don't always know if there's going to be emails in a book or things like that. And it matters these days. Right. Okay. So before we do more, I have a couple of darker, serious literary fiction titles in mind, and then something a little more, the war of art. What do you think? You want a nonfiction in the mix or straight fiction? Um, let's go nonfiction as well. Yeah. Okay. For nonfiction, have you read anything by Ann Patchett? No, I haven't. Okay. I, mm, I like her. I wonder if she's ever, I wonder if she's old enough to be taught in the, uh, the English classes. Her, I think of her as Barbara Kingsolver as being contemporaries. Maybe they're actually not remotely the same age, but Kingsolver is. So maybe Padgett's mm-hmm. not far behind. So to balance out City on Fire, your 900 page behemoth, we <laughs> have a short Kindle, and I believe it's Kindle only single by Ann Patchett. It's called The Getaway Car, and it can't be more than 20,000 words. So this isn't straight up inspiration like Stephen Pressfield, where he tells you to get to work and put your butt in your chair and you're responsible for your own destiny. This is more a reflective um, memoir with a tiny smidgen of how to about how Patchett became a writer, um, because that was not the career path she was on from her school years. So even though she did realize she wanted to be a writer about the same time she learned to ride a tricycle, but it wasn't, she was not on that actual let's go to work in the morning path. So this is a mini memoir and she sketches the path from her girlhood days all the way through to the completion of her first novel, the patron saint of liars. And she explains um, how it came to be and some of the like internal self-talk, how she made herself write the novel and struggle through the process. And it also includes 
some of the uh, the practical stuff, like what she told the voices in her head and how she got her butt in the chair and how she made it happen. And she does include a little advice along those lines that I maybe could have used as a college college senior or high school senior. You know, like if you want to write, sit down and write. Don't wait for the magic to happen. Like you have to make it happen. So it's called The Getaway Car because Patchett saw writing as her escape from her mundane life. Not that it was necessarily so bad, but she wanted to be a writer. So any life that wasn't the writing life wasn't the one she wanted. Um, and we see how she goes through her college years, complete with fabulous teachers, a failed marriage, the Iowa writing program, which you probably know is mm-hmm. highly esteemed, and a waitressing stint at TJI Fridays, where she includes little details about how she worked on her characters in her head as she was filling Coca-Cola refills. <laughs> so based on your love of the war of art and your love of a good story, I think that might be up your alley. It sounds a little bit like Stephen King's on writing where it's part memoir, but then also part tactical. I know Stephen King talks about the toolbox and how you need to fill that toolbox with your style and your words. So it seems like a great read. They could be cousins. They definitely could. This is the 20,000 word version. Although I don't remember on writing being particularly long for something that came out of King's pen. I remember it feeling like a normal size hardback in my hand. I really enjoyed that one. Yeah, I think it's about 250, maybe 300 pages tops. Yeah, and it's definitely, if I know there are a lot of readers out there who are scared of Stephen King. You do not need to be scared of on writing. Not at all. Okay, so book three, we're going to go back to your finely crafted, strong sense of place historical novel. And it is Euphoria by Lily King. So have, have you heard of this one? Do you know anything about it? I don't. Okay. It's historical fiction. It's based on the life of the great anthropologist Margaret Mead. And at times it's pretty thinly veiled if you know anything about her life. But it isn't just like, oh, I want to make history more interesting come to life. Like there's a really fascinating story here that um, King King pounced on to, you know, it's I imagine it's hard to come up with good material. And this was some great material just sitting around. So she based the story on an actual trip. Mead took down the Sepik River of New Guinea in 1933. So Mead was with her second husband at the time, um, spouse and research partner. And for a while, they collaborated with the man who would actually become her third husband. And King, who was highly praised for her meticulous research and accuracy about the small details of the trip here, even though the heroine's name is not Margaret Mead. Um, She takes the setup and basically tells the story of a love triangle in the jungle in the 30s with some of the greatest minds of the 20th century as her characters. And it's intellectually, I mean, she deals with some heavy themes, but it's very readable. The sense of place is incredible. It's the plotting is um, very uh, careful and the jungle is just leaping off the page. How how does that sound to you? It sounds phenomenal. It sounds like Heart of Darkness all over again. You know, and I wasn't even thinking Heart of Darkness when I when I was formulating that for you, but you are completely right. Although it's um it's brooding, but it's much less sinister. Okay. Okay. So Brian, of those three titles, what do you think you'll read next? I might do the getaway car just because it sounds like something short and sweet. And I'm on spring break this week from school. So that might be something I could tackle just this week. Glad to hear it. 
Although I really wanted you to say City on Fire. I do think that's right up your alley, but it's 906 pages. So Yeah, and we do live close to the beach, so that could be a good sit on the beach for a couple hours, put on some sunblock, and just enjoy a good book. That sounds great to me, although I wouldn't want you to intimidate your fellow beachgoers with your doorstop (laughs) novel. I do hope you enjoy them. Brian, thanks for talking books with me today. And thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. Hey, readers, I love chatting with Brian about his favorites and what it does to your reading life to teach literature to a room of high schoolers for a living. If you have a recommendation for what Brian should read next, go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 19, that's the number one, nine, and leave your picks and comments there. You'll find the full show notes right there, including a list of all the titles we discussed in today's episode. Remember, you can connect more with Brian at his blog, wisdomofman.com, and you can find out more about his podcast, Talks with Teachers, at talkswithteachers.com. Before we go, don't forget, Go to whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash iTunes and make sure you are subscribed. Thanks again so much for listening. If you're on Twitter, let me know there at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Readers, that's it for this episode. As Reiner Maria Rilke says, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone.